The Way Out Podcast, episode 296. What is your name? My name's Andrew Pierce. Andrew, what was your substance of choice or DOC? Oh, let's see. Uh, There were so many to choose from. (laughs) I guess if I had to have a hierarchy, I'd probably start with cocaine Mm -hmm. and then rum, Mm -hmm. which is its own class of alcohol, right? It absolutely Um, is. And, uh, you know, pot, cannabis, if you want to get fancy. Um, And probably mushrooms and... Oh, and then I finally added benzos to the to the mix, and that's when the wheels fell off. You know, in treatment, a peer of mine referred to himself as a what-you-got-a-holic. Mm-hmm. And I identified with that. Although alcohol was definitely my first love and ended up being my downfall for sure, uh, I was equal opportunity as well. What is your clean and sober date? April 26, 2014. Congratulations, brother, on eight years very, very soon of Mm -hmm. continuous recovery. We do not do that by accident. No, no, we don't. It's not one big decision, right? It's a regular decision that we have to make. Otherwise, think how many times we would have been sober. If it was just a matter of one big decision. <laughs> and that's a truth. It's a daily choice we make mm. to live differently. Yes, sir. How do you serve the recovery community? Well, gosh, let's see. Um, I'm, a, I'm an addiction therapist, and so I spend pretty much all day, every day, dealing with uh, recovery in some form or another. It's kind of nice. I get to deal with all types of scenarios. And I tell people, you know, honestly, I think that uh, it's probably that that keeps me sober more than anything, the interdependence of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, dealing with other people. Um, You know, there's accountability. You get people's stories. You get the emotional content of their experience. A lot of people try and stay sober in isolation, and that doesn't work. And I'm pretty sure that it's the regular connection with other people in recovery that keeps me sober. I can relate to that on such an intimate level. I feel exactly the same way about this podcast. Mm -hmm. Because I have the opportunity to regularly and intentionally connect with other people's recovery stories and journeys, Mm -hmm. I see all of me in all of you and I'm constantly reminded not only of what the problem was and still is but what the solution is and I need to be reminded of both and so staying in intimate contact with other people that are in recovery or trying to get into recovery keeps me connected to my own. Yeah. Um, Who was it? Brene Brown said that love is human connection as a result of authenticity. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's more authentic than a uh, a therapeutic relationship with somebody? I always tell people to try and 
emulate the therapeutic relationship outside of the environment. They'll save they'll save themselves hundreds of dollars, and uh, you know they'll get coffee too. <laughs> I'm proud it. I love that, Andrew. What does recovery mean to you? Well, for me, I think uh, what I'm recovering ultimately is uh, my true self, uh, because. Over the years of addiction, and I would argue probably family of origin type stuff, I build up, you know, I build up this uh, defense mechanism, this false self, in order to give what probably, in my mind, thought gave me the best chance of receiving love, right? And you know, kind of given ideas about what's acceptable and what's not, and you know, repress certain aspects of my personality uh, over the years, uh, and the byproduct of that is always resentment and kind of forget who we were or who we're supposed to be as a result of years of substance abuse and the dishonesty that comes with that, both the active dishonesty and the passive dishonesty about not asserting my true self because the self-esteem goes in the tank and uh, just so I would project a false image. So for me, recovery, once it was getting the substances out of the way, it's really a lifelong process of tearing the layers of uh, false self away to consciously assert my true self. So yeah, recovery for me is being able to assert myself authentically. It reminds me that recovery is as much a process of elimination. Mm -hmm. And I heard somebody wants to describe it like a sculptor works removing all of the unnecessary stuff that's blocking what we're really trying to get at our true sense of self and that's as much discovery for me in my experience as it is uh, anything else yeah well, you know, or being our true self, our authentic self, if you think about it, you know, love is, uh, I should say, a healthy relationship or healthy relationships are the only place that love resides, right? And if we're incapable of being authentic, we're not able to experience love. And love ultimately is what displaces the ability for addiction to grow. It, it, uh, so where it, Addictions like a substitute and the absence of love is a place for addiction to fester and grow. Mm. And so as I recover my true self and gain the capacity to engage in healthy relationships with other people, that takes away the environment that addiction can grab a hold of and grow roots. Mm. And uh, everything about addiction takes away our ability to be a safe person to love. I think the opposite of addiction is being a safe person to love. So. Mm. We're, we can guarantee our behavior, we're consistent, we're trustworthy, um, and those are really important. We have 100% access to our emotions, and so does the person with whom we're in a relationship. And we're not a moving target anymore because we're not projecting a false self to gain acceptance. And once we regain our true self, I call it the authentication process, um, we become authentic, we're no longer a moving target. So. Um, you know, we start out as we're born a certain way, truly authentic and connected to our our authenticity. And then we learn that we have to 
you know, withhold certain aspects of ourselves in order to be acceptable to our parents, our loved ones. That creates a lot of stress. Then you have that first hit of ganj at age 13, or, and you're like, oh, I didn't realize how stressed I was. And that really sets the stage for a, a lot of future issues with substances in the absence of any self-awareness, you know? No doubt about it. And I think about it in the context of the lack of authenticity is that first block to love allowing ourselves then to be exposed as you said to all forms and manner of addiction and obsession which ultimately resulted in me not being able to even trust myself yeah we forgot who we are because it became habituated i think of the behaviors that i engaged in toward the end of my uh, uh substance use and I thought incorrectly that I had managed to kill my conscience with all the substances that I did because my behavior would certainly uh, dictate that, doing what I wanted in spite of what other people, how it affected other people. Um, I I really thought I was a sociopath, but the problem, of course, is that uh, sociopaths don't have the ability to accurately empathize with other people, but I felt unconsciously at least guilty about the things I did. Mm. Therefore, it caused me to drink more. So as my behavior deviated further and further from my true values, there was there were no longer enough substances to fill in that mm. space without taking trips to the hospital after a while. Mm. It, it became a survival thing to, you know, whereas the addiction um, was a useful tool at some point uh, eventually that tool that pr- protection from my guilt and shame uh, turned on me and it became the problem and eventually i had to do something about it welcome way out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the way out podcast we appreciate your ears our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. 
We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we have for you a phenomenal interview with addiction therapist, person in long-term recovery, and author of the new book, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, Putting the Universe to Work for You, Andrew Pierce. Perhaps one of the greatest hurdles folks have in embarking on the 12-step program of recovery or the compatible Minnesota model of addiction treatment is the concept of adopting a higher power that can aid in our recovery. Those of you way out faithful that have listened to this podcast for a hot minute know that prior to entering recovery, I had a deep-seated resentment, skepticism, and an unhealthy dose of ambivalence on the idea of God, especially one that could help me in any meaningful way. Andrew's work in his new book centers squarely on this barrier that I and many others have faced in a particularly practical manner in that it focuses on what the problem is, which is the maladaptive thought and behavior patterns that make up addiction, and precisely how spirituality both functionally works and can be of enormous value to our recovery journey. His work passes the proverbial smell test in that what he lays out in the book aligns with my own collective spiritual experiences and journey to this point. The how of recovery, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are essential in an effort to embark upon an individual spiritual journey and to develop a relationship with a higher power that can really work for you no matter where you are at with regard to your current attitudes and beliefs with respect to all things spiritual. Andrew's work amounts to a field guide that can help us understand the nature of addiction, the process of recovery, and how even the deepest spiritual skeptic can develop a sense of practical spirituality that can make a real difference in our lives. What we're ultimately working to achieve is first authentic connection to our true selves, then an authentic and rewarding connection to others, and ultimately an authentic and meaningful connection to a power greater than ourselves. And to that end, Andrew's book is an essential contribution to that goal, and the interview that is about to unfold before your ready and willing ears will most certainly make a compelling case for resolving your own spiritual skepticism. So listen up. Andrew Pierce, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I cannot wait to dig into the book you wrote, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, Putting the Universe to Work for You, as well as digging into your recovery journey. You are a person in long-term recovery. You are an addiction therapist, and you're here with us. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Before we dig into any of that, 
Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and we will get started. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, like uh, Charles said, I'm, I've been in recovery for about eight years now from all sorts of substances. And uh, it, I went to the grad school up in Center City, Minnesota. Hazelden Betty Ford Grad School, did my practicum there, got what's called the advanced degree, where I also focus on co-occurring disorders, anxiety, depression, all that fun stuff that usually comes along with, with addiction. And um, started a practice down here, or joined a practice, I should say, down here in Florida, and started working with lots of people in addiction, you know, people in Naples that come down and uh, they retire and I've got nothing but time and money on their hands mm. and lots of uh, booze and mm. country club type of things. And next thing you know, they're calling me, their spouse is calling me up saying, you better do something. <laughs> indeed. Uh, idle time can be indeed the devil's playground for sure. Right. Time on your time on your hands and money in your pocket. Indeed. We here from the Way Out podcast are big fans of the Hazelden Betty Ford folks. My treatment experience was Hazelden Betty Ford, the very beginning of my own recovery, so very close to my heart. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to and through recovery. What was family of origin like? Where did you grow up? And uh, what was childhood and those uh, early years like for you, Andrew? That's a great question. Let's see. Well, I grew up in central Wisconsin. You did. And, uh, yes. I did. Uh, you know what? I'm a big fan. And I, I never, Andrew, I never thought in a million years I would say this, but I'm a huge fan of folks that are born and raised in Wisconsin. My girlfriend was born and raised in Wisconsin, and they, they grow well there. So how do you handle Packers Vikings games then? You know what? Actually, pretty well. I'm a Vikings fan. I'm a diehard Vikings fan. She's a diehard Packers fan. And they have had everything for 30 years. And uh, the Vikings have had pretty much nothing for that period of time. But nonetheless, she is about the most gracious Packers fan you could ever meet in your entire life. So that helps a lot. That's good. If it's any consolation, I did survive the Lynn Dickey era. <laughs> That's what she says, too. You know, she grew up w when the Packers were terrible, so they weren't always good. OK, well, um, you know, I, I grew up. It's, it's a, I was I was adopted at, as an infant, actually. Mm. Um, and my folks, uh, my dad was a lawyer. My mom uh, was an English major. She she stayed home and did a lot of social things that uh, spouses of attorneys do you know to get uh, visibility in town and she was the social director and my dad worked a lot and so um i had there, there's some interesting things i you know family of origin does tend to set the stage in many cases for addiction right and mm -hmm. so um you know we, we were we were pretty well off and i certainly didn't didn't uh, miss anything i think for me as a kid, I had ADD, right? And about 80% of my clients either have or should have been diagnosed with ADD at some point in their lives because the uh, the fountainhead for addiction is essentially a physiological uh, issue, shortage of dopamine D2 receptor activity in, in the pleasure center of the brain. 
And so if you look at the behaviors associated with childhood ADD, risk-taking behaviors, novelty-seeking, a lot of activity, um, that's probably going to fall outside of the social norms. But then your parents, if their mantra is children are to be seen and not heard, you're, you're probably going to get feedback that would be uh, cause you to want to repress your true self and uh, you know sort of fit into a box, which strangely enough, even in our childhood and infancy, we're, t- we're keeping track of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when I turned 13, uh, I discovered pot and, and alcohol, and that was awesome for about four years until I got in some legal trouble, which I won't elaborate on, but it, it wasn't good. Uh, and so the judge gave me a choice of going to prison for three and a half years or um, going to treatment. And so even I was smart enough to uh, decide, well, you know, maybe treatment's a better idea. So they sent me up to Plymouth and uh, decided that maybe I I would, I guess I I got kicked out for conspiring to bring bales of pot across the border from uh, Brownsville to Texas to the U.S. And so they kicked me out and they were going to send me to prison and they found me a bed at Fairview. Uh, it used to be called Fairview Deaconess, uh, a lockup unit because I was still 17 for treatment. Then I went to a halfway house in St. Paul called Sherburn House for six months. And I stayed sober for 13 years. Uh, 13 which was, years? Yeah, until I was 30 years old. I gave myself permission to have a nice glass of wine on my birthday. Went on that Stillwater train um, and uh, had a, had a good, good time. Uh, and you know the Latin nice glass of wine sounds so civilized, right? But I had an eight, I had an eighteen year run uh, after that. Uh, during the time I was sober, uh, you know, I went and did the rock star thing out in L.A. Uh, in the big hair days, playing on the Sunset Strip, Poison, Warrant, and all those guys. You know, so I'm, I've always you know been sort of a rock and roll kind of guy, Dio, uh, Black Sabbath, all that, um, and. Uh, met my girlfriend, which was a, turned into a wife because we had my daughter. Uh, and I did the right thing uh, by, by uh, quit, you know, quitting that. And when I say right thing and put it in scare quotes, that, that's an example of when I, when I look back at every major decision I made through my life, uh, it was to maintain attachment to other people, to not be rejected by my parents primarily. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, again, in childhood, that's one thing, but a lot of people that codependent sort of uh, attitude carries on and it's the source of tons of resentment. So even though I was sober, um, you know, I I'd, I'd sprouted other addictions, addictions like whack-a-mole, you know, so I think I um, probably screwed around a lot, and uh, that, which was uh, an addictive behavior uh, on, on the wife. Eventually that came to the surface and after I went back to drinking and when I was like, and so I ended up getting divorced in 05 and went back out to LA still using uh, and um, ne- never, never stopped uh, for 18 years. I had an 18 year run during which I, when I was sober, I could do things I, you know, I ran a business, I had a corporate retirement plan consulting firm uh, and uh it just get, built up a lot of wealth and pretty much lost everything. I, when I saw the trajectory I was on, 
I made a life raft for the wife and kids and uh, gave them the house and basically was uh, looking to die, hopefully, uh, by hitting a tree or something painless and fast. Uh, it never worked out in that way. Maybe that's for better or for worse, but my daughter hasn't spoken to me for 16 years since even then. So, mm. um, you know, those types of behaviors, symptomatic behaviors of addiction can be uh, problematic. So I read about I read about other, a lot of things in the book. I, I read about my last date, my last few months of use, where eventually I got married again and pretty much engaged in the same behaviors. And when I added Xanax to the mix, that's when the wheels fell off and I had a lot of memory issues. I was coming home. I worked at a regular job um, and uh, would come home. I'd go to the bar after work and come home and... Uh, black I wouldn't remember I'd have to remember where I parked every night uh, which didn't work and I'd have to find my car every morning um, which and, is a terrifying experience right I mean that that's well, frustrating that, yeah um, I, I read there's a section in the book where I write about that last day where I, I wake up it's my wife's birthday no less um, and it's about 10 in the morning I've been sleeping on top of the covers and um, look, looked at my watch. I'm like, where's my wife? And uh, I figured maybe she went to the store, right? You know, memory issues. And um, so I give a call and she's like, don't you remember what happened? I'm like, that's which is never a good question, right? When you know. <laughs> and uh, she said I had told her about, you know, the person I'd been seeing and uh, was leaving her for. Her. And she said, but she'd spent the night on the phone, you know, lined up a treatment center for me. And she said, well, someone's coming to get you at two o'clock. And I'm like, I still have four hours. So, you know, I went to my watering hole. I found my car, which, uh, you know, I had to do every morning and um, got in, drove to my watering hole, got out. And as I'm walking to the to Champs in Burbank, I, I turned back and looked and it's like the whole side of my car was like, like with like tinfoil. I, I, I don't know how my alignment wasn't screwed up. I would have known that because I'm a car guy. All I know is on the way to there, I noticed the glass on the side view mirror was missing. I figured, well, somebody needed it more than I did, maybe. Um, so I'm looking for, you know, from Wisconsin, right? I'm looking for hair and blood and, right. <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, and the cracks. And I couldn't, there was nothing there. So I was like, okay, well, went back in and into the bar and uh, had my last hurrah. Uh, you know, I guess I, I made it, got back at the to the apartment in time for the guy to come haul me off. And uh, that was April 26, 2014. And I've been sober ever since then. So many things I can relate with. And I know so many others that are listening right at this moment can. Do you remember the first time you got drunk? High, your first, was that a memorable experience for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, uh, uh, definitely. I remember the first time I got stoned on pot. I think I was 13. Somebody my folks had lined me up with or that was visiting from California because her her and the guy didn't know anybody. So they called up on the country. Yeah, do you have my grandson's coming? Do you have anybody to hang out with? And then he brought some great pot with him from California. So right. that was my that was my first exposure. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's what that's about. Yeah, I remember definitely first time the question. You know, we have a similar experience because I also went to Fairview at that time. It was the adolescent treatment Fairview Riverside in Minneapolis. Yeah, it was Fairview, Fairview Riverside. Okay. Yeah. Probably yeah. the same unit. Yeah. Although I lied 
my butt off and somehow uh, got myself into outpatient versus inpatient. So uh, because I was terrified of being an inpatient. Uh, yeah. and I didn't have a choice because I would have <laughs> found a jail otherwise. Right, right. You had a you had an ultimatum. I did not. Uh, mm-hmm. Though the though you know it was an interesting experience for a lot of reasons. I mean, I had just found you know I I, I was 15 years old and and they and my folks my dad and my stepmom made me go because uh, the first time I got drunk I got alcohol poisoning and almost died so they sent me to treatment so you got a problem found pot mm. right okay you got a problem so uh, I'm in the 28 day outpatient and I'm waxing poetically about steps I have no intention of working and so you got an A in treatment I did and I was ready to chip out uh, and everybody's passing the coin around saying that, you know, Charlie, you're going to stay sober forever. If I just had a shred of your wisdom and Eileen, the head treatment counselor, usurps the circle. I didn't think this lady was listening. But she was the whole time, clearly, because she usurps the circle, takes the coin, looks at me. Says, you're lying to this group. You're lying to yourself. You're going to use again. And it's probably going to kill you. And she walked out and she was 100% correct. And every time my addiction became unmanageable, Eileen would come to my forefront of my consciousness. You're lying to yourself, lying to everyone else. You're going to use again and it's probably going to kill you. So it was a very important experience for me as I traversed my whack-a-mole style addiction. And I too got married because right my, thing to do. it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I had to keep the alcohol at bay. She knew that I was in treatment and when we met, I was sober. So I had to keep that at bay. But I stopped going to meetings because that was for other people. I stopped. The steps weren't really... You know, that was my second nudge from the judge attempt at recovery. Then all of these other obsessions and addictions, sex and porn and food and would come up. And it was absolutely addiction whack-a-mole. That, mm-hmm. And it very much felt like every time I got one sort of put at bay to some extent, another one would just go crazy. And I had no ability mm-hmm. to be completely addiction free, no matter how badly I wanted to be. I couldn't do it. And I was constantly ruled by one addiction or another until I finally surrendered. When you some win- are just more acceptable than others, socially acceptable. And the ones that nobody can see, it doesn't matter anyway, because then they're not judging you. You're the only one judging yourself. That's right. And I was judging myself, by the way. I very much was committed to the Jekyll and Hyde style of addiction management as long as everybody else doesn't think or realize there's a problem there's not a problem right that's yeah, how yeah, i felt it's, about, it's it. about fitting in as long as you're okay with everyone else then it's all right exactly exactly mm-hmm. when but it's you, dishonest it's and 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 that's the thing because i become increasingly separated from the person i know i can and deeply want to be. And I become farther and farther and farther away from that. Right prior to my surrender, my surrender moment, 
I felt like I was so far away from that person that it was impossible to get back there. It was just impossible. That ship had sailed and it was painful because I wanted that person back. But I really believed at the end that that person was out of reach. I couldn't. Yeah. I and and, and, and it was so deeply buried you know, with defense mechanisms and addiction that it's just, uh, you know, it's it seems like it's impossible to to dig it out, you know. No doubt about it. Were you trying to get sober when when you were you had your last hurrah? Was it on your mind like, man, I just got to get so were you were you doing it for you? Well, oh, I mean, I, I had a plan. I mean, you know, like I said, my folks had some do re me saved up. Right. And uh, even they're smart enough to know that the best way to kill someone in active addiction is to give them a shit ton of money. Right. Right. And so they weren't getting any younger. So my plan was to, uh, you know, stay sober when I went in. My plan was to stay sober uh, and, uh, you know, make sure they get drug tests and stuff like that, knowing that eventually, you know, they're going to cash in their chips. Right. And then I can get the money and go back up and have a good time. Mm. Um, but my counselor was really uh, a smart guy. And it ties into something that you said was uh, after a he asked me a good question because I had always done a lot of, you know, with ADD and, and being a fairly smart guy, I'd always managed to and getting easily bored. I did a lot of different things business-wise over time. I would start businesses. And then when my reality started exceeding what my residual uh, shame-based self-image was like, I would pull the rug out from under it. And so, like I did a couple of music magazines. I published music magazines. I was an investment advisor for a long time. And, um, but I would pull the rug out from under myself because the addiction would eventually, you know, get me down in one form or another. And um, my counselor said, you know, Andrew, uh, Mike Potter out in the, at Betty Ford out in the desert, um, he said, you know, what could you accomplish if you could get out of your own way? Mm. You know, instead of going through life with half your brain tied behind your back, look how well you've done just with that. What could you really accomplish? And to me, that was a compelling question, mm. you know, but I had had the learned helplessness that I didn't believe that it would be possible to get out of my own way. So I just quit trying after a while. And, you know, in my, in my book, I talk about the, you know, that elephant painting, uh, uh, there's a circus, a big top with an elephant munching hay outside between sets, right? And um, it's got a little rope around its leg and a stake stuck in the ground. And, you know, the average observer would be like, well, that's ridiculous. He could easily pull this stick right. out and run off through the parking lot. Why does right. he do that? But most people don't understand that it's, that it's been at working at the circus since it was a baby elephant when the, uh, you know, stake and the rope was sufficient. And eventually it just learned not to not to even try. And it works. And that's what I was like. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of my clients in addiction are like that, um, which is why I wrote something called the magic wand thought experiment, where I basically have them, I, I, I have them for homework, you know, I have them write an essay, say, here's a magic wand. I want you to write an essay saying what your life would be like if you had a magic wand, you could make everything, including yourself, exactly the way that you want it everything, you know, people in your life, yourself, what you'd look like, what you do with your time, time and money is no object, right? What would that look like? And it's, it was remarkable to me initially, how many people in, in the population that I work with, can't 
literally cannot conceive of a scenario where the from the time they wake up in the morning to the time they go to sleep is overwhelming gratitude because they've created this idealized version of themselves and their environment. I mean, and that scares, hopefully it scares the shit out of them. It usually does. It's like, I can't believe that I can't even imagine what that would be like. And that's that example of learned helplessness. And so if we don't even have a vision to aspire to, how the hell are we going to know which way to start walking? We need something that's sufficiently compelling to move toward so that addiction really becomes sort of part of our past in a very small sliver of our day-to-day experience. It's about changing our identity. And so, you know, my clinical model is like that. And, and, and you know, so that magic wand th- thought experiment exposes a lot of pathology in their thinking, their unquestioned beliefs about who they are, about what's possible. Um, uh, for better or for worse, it causes them to get clarity about maybe some of their relationships that they're in, um, which can create its own challenges, right? You know, if you suddenly realize, holy crap, I got married to somebody that, you know, when I was in active addiction and, you know, now I'm sober and I can see why I was stoned all the time, right? And if they're both stoned, it's like they both put up with a lot of crap that mm-hmm. they, uh, somebody with accurate access to their emotions wouldn't, right? So we either have to navigate that situation and create a soft landing for the relationship or have some conversations that are going to enable the person to live a happy life as their most authentic self. And it's only from our greatest, a point of authenticity that we can get the clarity that we really need in order to decide what we want. So you had this experience in treatment and I have ADD too undiagnosed when I was younger, but diagnosed as a, an adult and use that, by the way, as a free license to ramp up my ADD medicine as high as I possibly could so I could abuse that, too. Even though I told myself at the time that I wasn't abusing it, I absolutely was. And it makes sense that that is a component in terms of my own journey, but I think many others, too, whether that be ADD or some other uh, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, these things are all part of that mix as, as well as adverse childhood experiences and trauma. All of that mm-hmm. plays an important role in terms of our susceptibility to a substance use disorder. Now, mm-hmm. as you began your recovery journey, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Did you follow a certain program as you progressed upon your recovery journey this time around? And what was different this time around, if anything, from Mm -hmm. the previous? I mean, you had long-term sobriety prior. Drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Right. So what was different? I just switched to to church during that period of time when I was uh, sober from booze. Right. Okay. Um, So, uh, when you know when I got sober this time around, first of all, I gained seventy pounds over the first you know three years, right? Um, until I got a handle on that, which I used that Noom app, which actually was useful because it uses a lot of recovery principles. You know, it asks you what you really want and why you really want that, which is kind of interesting. But um, the the first two years, 
was really tough because I moved across the country um, to start over with the, with the company I was working for and um, it, to Wilmington, North Carolina from LA, which I'm, it's not an exciting town. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a change of pace. It was a change of pace, you know, from Rockstar in LA and all the excitement, uh, but it, it was, it was hard. And especially knowing now how strong my recovery is because I'm dealing with people all day that are in addiction, having real conversations with real people, meaningful conversations. I mean, that's a form of love, right? Human connection is a result of authenticity. I didn't have that understanding then. I just would go to meetings when I was literally at, at the, my wits end as far as white knuckling it. Mm. Um, and so I got accepted to the grad school though, uh, which uh, about a year and a half into my recovery, my buddy Tom Larson uh, said, eh, you ought to be a counselor or something. I'm like, yeah, right. Um, and uh, strangely enough, a couple of days later, I got an email saying, oh, you should be a counselor from, you know, <laughs> an email from them because I was an alumni, I guess. And so I like responded to it and I didn't expect much. And I said, oh, yeah, do an interview. And so I did, I got in and uh What's interesting is uh, I applied because I never wanted to go back to the way I was. Um, and so I, when I went, got into grad school, I applied everything that I learned to myself, you know, so that I wouldn't, it's kind of like going to treatment for two years, right. except uh, I'm paying, paying about as much as most people would pay for a month, but it lasted for two years. Um, and internalized a lot of the information. I was able to work on the units. I worked on promises once, you know, a different semester in different scenarios, men's residential, women's residential, uh, day treatment and stuff like that. So I got a different taste for everything. Uh, so, but yeah, the first two years were tough because I didn't engage in interdependence. And uh, because I, you know, people like that are smart Right, they, 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 their ego gets in their way, mm -hmm. um, and so people. I found that my clients that are smarter have a harder time of it, especially the spiritual aspect, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it's there are a lot of different reasons why, and that's kind of what I wrote the book about, right? There are a lot of different re reasons why people, valid reasons why people have skepticism towards spirituality, and I was certainly one of those, and. You know the barometer by which I come along with the, the twelve promises, and I was able to identify to a some extent with a lot of the promises, but the spiritual ones I just couldn't get past those. And so that's what I wrote the book about when I, I got sort of an aha type of thing and ran with that and uh, came up with something. But you know, there's a lot of shame. Uh, you know, keep the same things, by the way, that keep people from connect interdependence with other people are the exact same things that people keep people from connecting with any sort of higher power. You know, it's the shame, past disappointment, uh, fear of judgment yeah. by, you know, all those exact same things. And, uh, you know, that if you have a non non judgmental uh, experience with people, then you're going to have a lot you know, a better opportunity for connection, but most people's Western philosophies of, uh, you know, spirituality involve, you know, some guy sitting on a throne with a beard and a robe telling you how much you suck if you don't do things their way. Um, you know, as kids, the closest thing to a higher power for us was our parents. And 
a lot of parents are pretty dysfunctional, you know? Um, and so just there, there are tons in the nineties. I, I, I tried the Christian thing with the promise keepers, right. You know, figuring it, which was a big Christian movement, figuring that would fix me and, uh, didn't work. So I got a chip on my shoulder toward, you know, higher power type stuff. So, you know, that I was really kind of screwed when it came to the recovery aspect, uh, and the spirituality, so I eventually, uh, I was always into physics and, and science and stuff like that. And it turned out that uh, a number of things, the experiences I had with uh, my clinical being a, a therapist uh, down here in Florida, um, kind of I connected some dots between a lot of things, consciousness, like meditation, stuff like that. And um you know, science, uh, the latest quantum field theory, uh, which is talks about consciousness and things like that. And I was able to find sort of a toehold on spirituality, which then I, I fully fleshed out into a clinical model for folks that have a problem that are spiritual skeptics, basically using Eastern philosophy, you know, the universe type stuff. Yeah, which yeah. I really love, you know, because so many of us have this block with spirituality. One of the things I identify with very, very much is the experience of having a huge resentment against God. You know, my mom died when I was 11 years old of cancer, and I made a very fateful decision that I didn't need Mm -hmm. God because he Mm -hmm. takes away boys' mothers. And I didn't need other people either because I was convinced at that moment that I could not endure another loss. You get your hopes up and and trust. It's not worth it. hundred percent. It's not not. worth it. I told myself over and over and over again, it's not worth it. It's not worth Mm -hmm. getting too close to other people. They're just going to go away. And I want no part of a contempt. hundred percent. Spiritual contempt for sure. It's not just skepticism, but contempt. hundred percent. And yeah. I vacillated between the two, right? Between contempt mm-hmm. and skepticism. Unworthiness. Yeah. And like God is for weak people. Or, or ultimately, we don't deserve that type of consideration if there is one, right? So there's like five or six or eight things really that keep people going into recovery from adapting a spiritual perspective. And I talk about those in chapter nine of my book. And, and they're all valid certainly from our perspective, right? Um, ultimately, um, you know, I had a conversation with somebody uh, recently about, he, he was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm into that, but, you know, I have this problem with the idea of there being a benevolent higher power, you know, because so many bad things happen. And, you know, one of the bases of, of my perspective uh, when it comes to spirituality is based in, in quantum mechanics, the idea being that, all possible realities exist simultaneously, right? All of them. And so maybe there is maybe there is a reality where there is no higher power and so on and so forth. Or maybe there's a reality, well, not maybe, there must be a possible reality where there is a higher power, but it's a mean, benevolent one, right? Um, it's just, it's a matter of choice. What kind of, because our consciousness actually dictates our reality we all have a local reality the book talks about how that works i'm not going to get too much into the weeds but the point is when all possible realities exist 
a spiritual awakening isn't really a matter of discovery. It's a matter of choosing to walk in a reality where there is a higher power that we're defining. And, um, you know, people would say, well, that's kind of weird. That makes you a co-god in your reality, which is kind of true, actually, by the, uh, in a li very literal sense, as, as defined, you're, you're creating your own reality. And so this clinical model that I came up with, you know, people would say, well, what about this idea of turning your will and your life over to the care of God as we understood in, you know, chapter two, or excuse me, right. uh, step two and three. And they have, you know, people with an ego are averse to that idea, right. obviously. And my response is, well, where, you know, what, what do you think your highest aspirations, where do you think they come from? You know, if, if you're going to choose to uh, adopt a higher power and a higher power, a belief that, above all things, the higher power wants us to be the most realized possible version of our true self and the most happiest all the time, those aspirations, you don't pull them out of your ass, you know, and the idea is that they come from a higher power. And so by pursuing the, uh, you know, a fully realized version of your true self, you're actually putting yourself in, you know, you're, you're, you're being consistent with, uh, you know, second and third steps. It's interesting you talk about being smart and intelligent, not being an asset when it comes to spirituality. spirituality. Yeah, certainly was my experience. I distinctly remember my second attempt, if you can call it that, at recovery. I'm 21, 22 years old, nudged from the judge. And I remember listening to people in these 12-step meetings, and half of me was like, I really wish I could get it like you all do. I really wish I could surrender kind of my intelligence. I was jealous. Half of me yeah. was yeah, jealous. Because intuitively, you know that people that have some sort of devoutness, regardless of whether it has any basis in reality, right. have an easier time of recovery. That's right? it. That's it. They we had, couldn't, yeah. we couldn't adopt that because it just, you know, was totally illogical. It didn't make yes. any sense. Yes. And, and the but, other part and was... statistically, that, it's true, though. 100%. And the other part was... I didn't think I was like them. I didn't I didn't need it. Right. So, uh, you know, but but I, I had this unshakable jealousness. And when I was finally reduced to total surrender in this treatment counselor's office and I was starting to work through the steps and I had this huge resentment against God, I distinctly remember listening to Joe and Charlie a lot in the beginning. And I do believe that it took Bill and Bob to write the big book and Joe and Charlie to explain it. That was hundred percent true for me. And they just kept telling me to run the experiment. And I kept mm -hmm. thinking the biggest problem, Andrew, that I had with steps two and three was the simple fact that if I can conceive of a higher power, right, and if I can make it up, this God of my own understanding, this God of my own and People are like, well, I just made up my own thing and it works for me. And I said, if I can make it up, it's not big enough for me. Okay. Bottom line, hard mm -hmm. stop. If it came out of my own conception, it is not big enough for me. And mm -hmm. so I just had to wipe the slate clean. And that's what Joe and Charlie were telling me to do. They were saying, look, being smart isn't going to help you here. Just run the experiment. And so I just started to pray to a God that I didn't understand that I had no concept of. I was literally praying to nothing. Yeah, it's an experiential thing. That's, That's the it. thing. You, you can have a conversation with somebody, but it takes that small step of faith to put it 
to do it right you know to put it into effect. practice and then and with, based with the same on thing with this, yes you know? yeah so based on then and you get feedback from the universe, so that's to speak, it. or whoever. That's it. And then you start connecting the dots. And that's the, the it. more you do it, the more feedback you get in your faith. Built that's up. it. And my faith is built on experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. built on, I get down on my knees in the morning and I ask for help. And I ask for the power to act in love and service. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. I'm just trying to be of maximum service. That's it. Yeah. And at night, I say, thank you. That's it. Right. And that little bit that I started with had a monumental effect. It has a profound impact on on your experience and your recovery. And for me, that's, you're right. That's, that's the thing for me too. What becomes more obsessive for me is, you know, pursuing, trying to continue to assert my authentic self because and overcome those codependent fears of, you know, abandonment, what are they going to think of me? It's the more that's at stake emotionally, the more I'm inclined to water down my personality, which is but one of the things in my idealized vision of myself that I've created, that I've added, you know, there's core values, right, for me, like, and many of them I possess to a greater degree than others, you know, intelligence, humor, creativity, I'm a music guy, uh, adventure, freedom, impact, uh, love and connection, all these core values, but ones that I had to install and that I meditate on to try and, and then come out of that. I, I, the idea is to go into the meditation and put yourself in that state of being of this idealized version of ourself. And then when we come out, we bring some of that with us, compressing the time between now and the time that that would have, instead of just waiting it for it to happen accidentally, which isn't going to happen. And uh, to that extent, it works very well. And this isn't a this isn't a new concept. Uh, Joe Dispenza wrote a book called "Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself," which basically outlines the same concept using quantum fields, uh, which is common knowledge, the secret uh, law of attraction, that type of stuff. But what bothered me, being the, is that nobody bothers to explain exactly how it works. What are the mechanisms behind where this works? And so if if I didn't understand it, I sure as hell wasn't going to trust somebody. Right. And so I spent two years in the rabbit hole, figuring out how that shit works and put it on in the book. Part two of the book is about how reality works. And part one of the book is the pathology that keeps us from, you know, the addiction based pathology and family of origin crap that keeps us from being able to buy into a higher power and then, Part two lays out the science behind how it's plausible. So basically, I'm making a, a, a circumstantial argument, right? Because you can't sit there and point objectively to a higher power and say, look, there's a higher power, right? It has to be a circumstantial argument based on evidence and ultimately experience, you know? And the book does a really excellent job of that. Um, it's exceeded my expectations by far. And in terms of the reviews and, the, you know, the five-star reviews, the sales, the word of mouth, what really pisses me off the most, though, is that I cannot market the book to the 12-step p- people. It's a, They'll say it's attraction, not promotion. Mm-hmm. And the, the, a, the, the, the local bookstore here will not let me give them the book because I might benefit from it somehow personally. Mm. Which is supremely frustrating. The very market that's going to benefit most from it 
is 100%. the very market that I'm not able to market to. I can't go to a convention, a state convention, and give a speech on the clinical model and how great it is. And that because I might, heaven forbid, I'd benefit by putting the shit together in my head. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, yeah, because it's not conference approved, Andrew. Right. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a it's a it's promo attraction, not promotion. So right. that's why I really right. appreciate formats like you, where hopefully there are people because people that buy it. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, they're all five star reviews, and they're all like PhDs, and and they're ranging from you know people in addiction clinicians to uh, you know patients who find the material useful. And I've got twenty six hours of video content, um, like as people go through the book. They'll see like a little, um, you know, insignia. And so they go to the website that has all the, the media vault and they click on it. it might be a YouTube a video, like a TED talk or something with a subject matter expert putting it into clarity for us. Or it might be a, a, a you know, Nova episode on the subject. So the book really connects together all the videos very nicely. And so that if a person actually goes through it, reads the book and watches the videos, it would be impossible for them to not come to a conclusion where they can get a pretty strong toehold on spirituality. It reminds me of the format of the problem and the solution. The mm -hmm. great talk by the very, very uh, well-respected Hazelden alum. And now his name escapes me and it's killing me. It blew my mind the way that he so eloquently laid out the problem and how he so eloquently laid out the solution. Very similar in the way that you laid that out. Fred Holmquist. Holmquist, yeah, the guy with the bow tie. That's right, bow tie guy. Yeah. yeah. And he, he did such a good job of laying out what our fundamental problem is with addiction, mm -hmm. about obsession, and then mm -hmm. the allergy. And what mm -hmm. the solution is. And what you do here is lay out what the fundamental problem here is. And then if we don't understand that this thing can be possible, just like recovery, mm -hmm. right? If I don't understand that this could be possible, that maybe just maybe, and that's all I need, maybe just maybe. And this book gives mm -hmm. maybe just maybe, right? Yeah, and that's all I need. Hope. hope is what that's it is. It. That's it. But it's, mm -hmm. it's not hope with, with nothing. Right. It's not. No, it's, a, a, it, it, right. it's like if you ever watch uh, like the first 48, right? I like those crime dramas. Yeah. Know? And so, you know, they have to come up, they have to make a make a case make, for it. They make have a to case, make a case. Right? And so it. it's like, OK, there's the dead guy. There's the shell casing. Right, there's right, the blood. Right, there's the right, fingerprints. Right, there's right. a couple of witnesses over here. Here's that a, are oh, and here's a motive. Up. Right. Yeah. Here's a motive. And here's the motive. You know, the life insurance policy. Right, exactly. It's funny how they always have life. insurance. They always have life insurance, Andrew. Always. It's like nev never be worth more dead than alive. No. Is the story, right? <laughs> So anyway, you know, I put together this whole, uh, you know, circumstantial argument to the point where it would almost be ridiculous to not to not try it. Yeah, to yeah. Not, uh, just and again, going back to Joe and Charlie to just try it like and they mm -hmm. just kept telling me like, hey, you know, if you do this thing to the best of your ability in order with mm -hmm. a sponsor and, 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 and you don't like the results. You can go back to your other life. You can go mm -hmm. back like there's nothing sure. stopping you. You could have that back. Just like you said, you you desperately didn't want to go back there. Neither did I. 
Mm -hmm. I desperately. Yeah, that was the, the, the pain. Uh, it was actually, frankly, codependence pain that drove me because I, I went through a, a breakup during, and it was the, the my, my denial just dragged me through so yeah. much pain that that's what really caused me to uh, get motivate me to to uh, I, I I'm I, codependence is harder, frankly, than addiction to get rid of because you know yeah. So it's like food, right? You got to yeah. eat, right? Yeah, you you got to have, have relationships, have right? It's the yeah. same thing. Like food addiction is harder than cigarettes because I can, hard to I trust can live yourself, without cigarettes, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It's hard to trust ourselves and we don't know if, you know, is it really love? Is it, right. you know, and, right. um, it, yeah, so that's why it's useful to have clarity about who you are and what you want, you know, being your most authentic version of yourself so that all that's all those decisions become quite easy what makes a safe person to love you know all these things does this and then person you can, meet that yes criteria? And then you oh. can start having boundaries right and then yep, you can yep. and then you can start being able to do things like go to for me anyway next level and understand my counterproductive thought and behavior patterns mm -hmm. that hurt me and hurt other people mm -hmm. and i can Go about the business of using any one of a myriad of recovery tools to choose to respond differently to these counterproductive thoughts and in response to emotions and situations. You know, the, whether that be you know some sort of fear-based response or whatever that is, I can stop. I can sit in it. I can sit with mm -hmm. myself in it. Mm -hmm not do anything right away and then choose a response that's consistent with the person I'm trying to be my, yeah, yeah. my authentic self. Yeah. You can live, you can behave, your behavior can be aligned with your values. You know, you can wake up in the morning and have pretty good assurance that your people around you are going to be aligned with your values. And, and we have choices. You know, we, if, if someone's abusive, we, we may not be able to change them, but we can choose how much of our, how many of our eggs we're going to, emotional eggs we're going to put in their basket. That's you right. Know, we have a choice. That's so right. the self-awareness is, is really super important to, to, you know, help us to stay sober because how? if we don't, if we don't know, if we don't know what's going on, we don't have, it's like fighting Mike, an invisible Mike Tyson, <laughs> one hand tied behind our back. So, so, so much of my work is educating people on, you know, what's going on. Yeah. So that, that awareness. And then being able to get out of our own way, as you said, really at the top, so that we can be our authentic selves and establish meaningful relationships with others at a higher power. I, too, very much suffered from a very codependent relationship, and that was ending when I first got sober, and that was... a. It's the most painful experience I ever had. That was indeed the most. Ever. Yes. Because in the past, I always had substances to buffer that. Exactly. Right? And, and so it's like, I suppose that most 18, you know, high school kids go through that kind of pain when right. they have their first breakup or something. Right. Right. But, you know, 48 is, you know, when that happens, that's a little weird and scary, but that's how it is. You know, if you don't have accurate access to your emotions, because you're messed up all the time and go through all sorts of stuff because you bubble wrapping your emotions. When we're sober, that codependency stuff can really mess with us.
No doubt about it. I had a bad breakup in high school with a brief point of sobriety, and it was awful then. And then in my 30s, when I got sober again, it felt the same, but worse. It was awful. I, I mean, I almost killed myself uh, because the you know, it was somebody that wasn't a healthy relationship. And when the money ran out, so did she. Imagine that. Indeed. You know, and... Which, met, which which only validate what I, what my shame based self image was totally. you know it's like yeah if, you know which that's the thing that's why we're so afraid of abandonment right totally because we're afraid we're going to have an experience that reaffirms what we already believe to be true about that's ourselves it. that's it that's why we have to assert our authenticity and get feedback that's contrary like a you know go to ACA meetings and stuff for instance where one of the rules is no crosstalk it makes it safe to talk about stuff that mm -hmm. would, you know, shame festers in the dark, but it's like cancer, emotional cancer. Mm -hmm. And when we are, have the experience, again, experiential intervention of sharing something and people don't, number one, they don't comment it. Number two, they don't run out of the room screaming and waving their arms. Mm -hmm. We get the experience of being, look, I said something that was authentic that I thought made me unlovable. Nobody died and they're coming back next week. Um, that's a profound experience it because really our self-esteem improves. And the idea is to, that we're able to carry that confidence out into the real world and have a much greater depth and richness of relationships as we're, we become willing to take risks outside of that, you know, controlled environment. No doubt about it. And this constant fear that I had that I would actually help manifest which was when I get too close to you and I and I get too attached to you, you're going to go away. You're going to abandon me. You're going to leave. And that and, if you find and, out who I really am, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I and I told myself that constantly and I was constantly terrified that you were going to leave. And at the same time, looking for the quote unquote one that was going to make me whole. You were going to make me whole. You were going to make me whole. Just like mm -hmm. alcohol was going to make me whole. Just like money was going to make me whole. Just like success was going to make me whole. Just like mm -hmm. being the manifestation of fitness was going to make me whole. Mm -hmm. None of it made me whole. It only made me sick. Every single Inside one of them made me sick. Mm -hmm. And no matter yeah. how much I thought that was the answer, it was a manifestation of the problem and it got me sicker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, for, and what's interesting is that if we just focus on, you know, again, recovering our true self and asserting it consistently and getting in touch with getting our heads and our hearts aligned with what we truly want for our lives, things start to happen in our favor. Life becomes easier as that we move closer to that reality. It's a, and so, you know, it's not really about the things like, you know, yeah, I'd like to have a place in Lake Como, right. Italy with a little Chris Craft bobbing <laughs> down on the lake and a place in Park City. And then this place here in a private jet to take me back and yeah. forth. You know, but what kind of person would I have to be? Well, I'd have to be fearless. I'd have to be smart. I'd have to do this, that, and the other thing. But the thing is, the internal aspects of that person that would want to walk in that reality, we can have that now. That's what my that's what my obsession is: is asserting my true self. 
I get 80% of the emotional experience of what that reality would be like in whatever environment I'm in. It's not about then I'm not depending on who's in my life, who's not in my life, what's in my life. It's more like who's in my life is a product of my happiness as opposed to my, um, you know, gaining happiness from other people and other people, the right people will have no choice but to gravitate toward us as we recover our true selves which, you know, that's where the love is, you know, where we can have, have honest conversations because we're not going to attract psychopaths into our life because they don't want anything to do with us because we're healthy, you know. We'll attract healthier people into our lives. When we are in this process of recovery, we are creating a life where drugs alcohol, other addictions aren't necessary anymore. It doesn't occur to us because we're having such a rich experience right. with so much love and connection. Right. And that is and so the whole you know, game. I, I, I play at bars all the time. I don't even think about drinking. Right. It's the yeah. whole game is to be in a connected environment, be connected to our brothers and sisters in mm-hmm. and out of recovery and you know what? My higher power speaks through you all, right? Mm-hmm. I hear my mm-hmm. higher power and I feel my higher power through other people, but I have to be willing to connect and I have to be able to connect and I can only be able to connect if I'm being authentic. And as you talked about in the, those 12 step rooms, mm-hmm. I get the permission to be vulnerable and authentic because other people are being authentic and vulnerable. They give yeah. me permission. And so they tell me it's okay to do that. And they give me the permission to do it. And when I do it, it's, as you so well said, it's a, it's an incredibly freeing experience, but I need to do it on the regular. I, I, I can't turtle back in. I have to do it. Yeah. I have to keep taking those, those risks and be authentic and vulnerable. Even if I think you might judge me for it, that's okay. I can still take that risk and realize that you know, that's how I continue to show up and be who I am. I just did it this morning at my eight o'clock meeting. Andrew, how has your spirituality evolved since progressing through your own spiritual skepticism? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I, I still actually uh, like to uh, be, I like my skepticism. I hope it never goes away because then I'm constantly amazed when I have experiences <laughs> that disconfirm that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, for me, uh, there's like there's three stages of recovery in clinical work. There's stage one where we get a handle on, you know, stabilizing the individual from the immediate issues of, of addiction, you know, re- relapse prevention type stuff that we learn. Stage two involves, you know, identifying and resolving a lot of the underlying issues that addiction we, we're trying to medicate, family of origin stuff, et cetera. Um, but stage three recovery is where we this process, concept of spirituality is introduced. And there's a section in one of the, um, the, the big red book uh, that ACA says that it usually becomes easier to realize a loving relationship with a higher power once we have done most of our stage two recovery work, recovering our true self. Uh, this is because the false self or ego cannot experientially relate to or know God 
And only the only part of us that can do this is our true self, which we come to know in our stage two work. Mm-hmm. While the false self may at best try to intellectualize a relationship with God, our true self does it from the heart and with fewer words needed. And so for me, um, you know, the, the benefits of, of, of spirituality are numerous. I mean, there are a lot of you know, clinical benefits to it. It decreases my stress. Right? Addiction is a stress response. It's a dysfunctional stress response. And so for me, the, 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 although this other stuff about, you know, idealized versions of ourselves and a, a work, perfect world in which to walk in is pretty neat and everything. In the end, for me, it's about clinically what are the clinical benefits of, of, uh, you know, adopting a sense of spirituality, which is a choice really. Um, again, it's not a matter of discovery. It's a matter of choosing to walk in a reality where there's a higher power and then experiencing the benefits that come with that reality. Um, and so, uh, for me, I, I use, the feedback, if you will, that I get from the universe, little synchronicities or lack thereof sometimes, depending on how on track I am with uh, asserting my true self and, met- and meditating and following you know, that idealized vision for myself. I use that as a compass. Um, in the old days with the airplanes, before they had GPS, like way up in the north part of Canada, they'd have a beep thing that t- if you're on, on track on beam, it would go, you know, Beep, 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 mm-hmm. beep, beep, beep. And the more the more on track you were, the more beeps you get. And as you start wandering off, you know, beep, 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 beep. So by the same token, you know, when I'm when I'm really in the zone and I'm focused on what I truly want in life, the kind of person that I truly want to be, and I assert that consistently and as fearlessly as possible, it's amazing the amount of feedback that I get that reaffirms that choice. Um, so for me, that's the barometer um, that I use to tell how I'm doing. And, uh, you know, the higher power does like to, to fuck with me, you know, sometimes <laughs> and, and test me. It's like start worrying about things, what's going to happen. And then finally, I'm like, oh, fuck it, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And uh, when I let go, strangely enough, you know, the, the, comes riding out of the over the horizon to save the day with whatever's going on, you know. So, and it took ex- a lot of experiences for because I'm such a cynic and so, so skeptical that I'm like, okay, finally, you know, maybe there's some bear there. And um, I had my first workshop on this clinical model last weekend, and one of the things that we're doing is we're building this little unified theory of recovery community where we're checking in once a week by Zoom to share when we do the, you know, engage in the process and we share the feedback that we're getting. And we have a we have a text string and it's like some of the stuff is just amazing. And it's really reinforces the rest of us when we see it happening for somebody else. And that's that community that you get yeah, to it participate is a building in, community. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll be, you know, taking the show on the road, going to various treatment centers, doing lectures on the on the model and the, the physics, the science behind it to help people that like me, right, that have, are, have a problem with spirituality uh, for any number of valid reasons that we've talked about. And that's really the goal for me. That's my mission now is to get this book and this concept into the hands of as many people, this clinical model with clinicians and therapists. I'm developing workbooks that go chapter by chapter so people can personalize it because there's so much there. It's so densely written that 
I'll say, yeah, read this. And then we'll come back and talk about it. And it's like, Oh, what do you think? And they don't even know where to start. There's just so much. The reality that we can keep it simple mm-hmm. and we don't have to overcomplicate it as you, I think illustrated very well that it's about getting to our authentic selves and then just making that effort, that action to connect to a power greater than yourself, whatever that might be. And again, for me, I didn't invent it first and then try to connect to it. That didn't work for me. I just had to start connecting to nothing. It seemed like at the start when I was kind of heading into it and realizing that that process in and of itself was an extremely spiritual process. And the key component for me was genuineness and authenticity. I was genuinely and authentically wanting to connect to something. I didn't care what it was. That's it. That's it. And, And it's like, but it's like any recovery program, you know, it's not one and done. It's like, you know, you have to keep doing it. And do it and do it. You, you know, you show up and, it's a, and you don't go to one AA meeting. Okay, I'm fixed. You know? And it's not checking the boxes either, right? It's not about, you know, getting to this point where I have this really elaborate spiritual routine and I'm checking the boxes. Mm-hmm. Well, I meditated, I prayed, I, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a gratitude. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. But if I'm just going through the motions, none of it means anything. And an ounce of authenticity and genuine desire to connect is gold. Right? Well, for me, it's, it's about a genuine for people's, you know, this program isn't for everybody. Right. But it's, it's ideal for people that are aspirational in nature that want to fulfill their true. So it's like a Tony Robbins thing, right. You know, people go to those Robbins things because they want to be the best possible version of themselves. And, you know, and that that's ideal, you know, that that's, that's all you have to want. And it, it's not about, doesn't have to be about spirituality for so much. It's just, we have to want to be the best possible version of ourselves, And we have to, it helps if we aspire to things because the universe does all the heavy lifting. You know, that's the thing that we we learn is that we don't have to do everything and feel hopeless. Like, well, if I want this, then I'm going to have to go to school. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to... It's like, no, actually, the universe does a lot of the heavy lifting for you, which you're, it's like you're not alone, which is strange. You know, I wouldn't have been able to say that two years ago when I started this project. Andrew, we've got some closing questions. Are you ready? I, I'm ready. I can start anywhere and go everywhere. I love it. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Hmm. Well, other than going to work every day and talking to people <laughs> right. in addiction... Um, you know, I, I've, I have guided meditations that are kind of tailored for this quantum type of thing, um, that take advantage of it, that use the language. Um, the scary thing for me is that when I do them too frequently, my reality starts exceeding my residual self image and it takes a while to catch up. Um, and so I'll take a break, but, um, yeah, the uh, I I'll, I'll, at night I is when I'm most likely to do my guided meditations with my earphones on. You know, you get the spacey music and shit, and so right. talking to you. Um, and then I, I sleep. I, I wake up and I I go to work and I I practice. I mean, I use the book as a clinical model, you know, for my clients. 
and I, 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 um, that, that's what I do. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm just immersed in uh, recovery all the time. And I ride my motorcycle. I've got a Harley that's in the shop now for two weeks, which is bumming me out of it. But it's, it's one of the few things that I do by myself for myself, because yeah. I, you know, when you're a therapist, you give a lot of yourself and you're, you're, you have to be very highly empathetic, right. To connect with people effectively. Um, so I spend my time, you know, doing that, but recovery wise, it's, that's, it's a lifestyle. I mean, it's, I built my life around my recovery to stay sober. It just happens that I'm able to do other things that reinforce my, my, the quality and depth of my recovery. The spiritual thing has been a nice piece to add for sure. As we continue to have a spiritual experience as the result of these concrete actions that we do it continues to inform our spirituality and this feedback loop that continues on as we I like to think about it as having dual citizenship basically right between the material and the spiritual world and it's nice to have that refuge to go to when i want to whereas before i didn't feel like i had that so it's it's a good coping mechanism too it absolutely is meditations become foundational for me in my recovery so has prayer but it's very you know my prayer is very simple and i've tried to keep my spiritual practices simple Mm -hmm. because i want to be mindful in them i want to be present in them i want to be intentional about them because that's where the value for me is derived from and that's where the meaning is derived from and that's where the reward comes from is Mm -hmm. in equal proportion to how authentically and genuinely i am immersed in those actions and practices yeah so putting myself in that meditative state for me is the same thing as praying basically putting out a congruent signal into the universe absolutely presumably that it's being listened to and then uh, it it does whatever it has to do for let me know that it's listening what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery um probably the the joe dispenza's book called breaking the habit of being yourself it outlined uh this it, it, it very it put very well this principle of aspiration and using the quantum fields and, and kind of how it works and gave examples of how it works and tried to explain some of the physics behind behind the concept. And so um, yeah, that, that Joe Dispenza the book Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. When I, I, I got the audible version of it and I was doing a sober companion thing up in Knoxville, Tennessee for a couple of months. So I'd take this guy to grad school and then I'd listen to the thing in the car. I'm like, wow, this would be great for, for people in addiction. So that's when I started putting, you know, doing the research on the science and then trying to figure out how it would fit into the addiction crowd. This is the only, the, the book that I wrote. Um, it's the only book that uses quantum field theory, a quantum a field-based change model for people in addiction because all the other books presume that you can you know imagine what a 
idealized version of yourself would be like and feel like they don't take into account the pathology that keeps us from being able to engage in that process. So it's like this book gets us up to steam and then we can turn it over and let Joe take over with his stuff. And he's got a he's built quite a life around the concept. And I love that because, again, that falls under the category for me that if I could dream up a higher power, it wasn't big enough for me. Right. So 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 that experiential model was very crucial for my own recovery and my own spirituality and continues to be critical for my spiritual journey. What I do Mm -hmm. informs my spirituality bottom line, right? It's not the other way around. It's not that I envision it first and then follow that vision. I don't know. We do have to do it first. What really got what got me going with the spiritual thing, being a skeptic was I had to do I had to do for the IOP I was running down here, uh, guided meditation stuff. And so I'd pick one out. I picked Muji uh, off of YouTube, the Indian guy, M-O-O-J-I. And they're like 15, 20 minute guided meditations and, and closing my eyes and then listening. And it's like, hmm, this is really good, you know, and he was able to peel away those layers of awareness to that point where I'm the observer of my thoughts, et cetera, which I w- it was surprisingly beneficial in terms of uh, not being consumed by my thoughts, right? Because I could then consciously choose which thoughts I was going to hitch my emotional wagon to. It's not like I was my thoughts, right? So consistently putting myself in that state of being where I'm just pure awareness was really kind of what got me the experiential aspect that gave me some traction to be like, oh, maybe there's some there there. And that was for me where it started out. And then I just built it out uh, from there. What is the best piece of advice you have received in recovery? Mm. Uh, let's see. Recovery, practical. Okay. So um, I was in my first year of my first semester of grad school. One of the professors there, her name was Nita. She, she died on the operating table a couple of years ago. She was a beloved professor, kindest person you could ever know. Mm. And uh, I was going through that breakup situation I was describing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm used, my buddy Jason and I would sit in the back of the room and cut up. I mean, you know, and. <laughs> I was just, uh, sorry, that was our thing, right? And so that particular day, I was kind of down. Everybody left, and I threw my backpack over my shoulder, and I was kind of hoping that she'd see me moping uh, yeah, as right. I left. <laughs> yeah. You know? And uh, so she didn't, you know, she was doing papers and stuff. So I stopped at her fire desk, and I'm like, yeah, sorry, I wasn't my normal self today, you know, going through some stuff, you know, and and uh, she didn't even look up. She was writing. She said, oh, you, you can be that way if you want to. And um, didn't even look up, which I thought was kind of dismissive. Right. The way that she said it. And I'm like, which was very out of character for her because she's very engaged and caring and loving. I'm like, OK, fine. You know, and I to myself and I left and I stopped about halfway out to my car. I'm like, did she, did she really say that? And but when I got to my car, I realized it that. Yeah, I could be that way if I wanted to or not was the part that was missing, right? That I had a choice to not be victimized by my my emotions, which were a byproduct of the meaning I was assigning to my environmental factors, right? I had a choice. And that's, for me, that was the biggest 
piece of recovery advice that I got that, yeah, I could feel victimized and sorry for myself if I want to. And I use that a lot, but I, but, but I, if I don't want to, then I don't have to, you know? And so when we develop the capacity to uh, choose which things we want to hitch our wagon to, you know, it's okay. If good stuff happens, then I can be mindless about, you know, letting it happen and enjoy the positive organic experience of somebody liking what I do, but I don't have to absorb the emotional content if somebody doesn't like it. It's kind of cheating really. And so I, I'll either have a neutral experience or a positive experience. Whereas in the past, um, and even a neutral experience will be positive because I'll be patting myself on the back for catching myself in real time. You have a choice of what you choose to hitch your emotions to. Yeah, I, I don't have to be victimized by my experiences because hmm. the world's just going to go about worlding, you know, and, and some people are malicious and some people are, you know, they don't care. And the reality is, is I'm responsible for my own I am. response yeah. and my own. So that, that was a, that was a big, big aha moment for me. And I, I really ran with that for sure. What's the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Well, other than navigating that one relationship, uh, a breakup, that was pretty challenging. Um, oh, for me, it's, it's an ongoing thing where I'm still uh, have that codependency that need to be uh, that, that fear of abandonment and fear of authenticity because, you know, I, I, there are relationships that I value. And the more I value a relationship, the more I still will question myself if I should really say that or not, not be authentic. Right. And that's a, it's an ongoing thing for me that I've made a lot of progress. I think so many of us can relate to that, my friend. So very many of us, uh, me included. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure I'm not alone. And that's uh, what's great about recovery is Indeed. that we're not alone. What is your greatest success in recovery thus far? Hmm. Well, what for me, the greatest success, I mean, other than writing this book, I mean, fr frankly, it didn't matter to me if anyone bought it or not, because it was so fulfilling writing it, you know, and getting such clarity of this stuff and being able, you know, five years out of grad school to write a, a book that is just getting traction in the recovery community like gangbusters that resonates so strongly with so many people for me. And it's so it's, it's an assertion of my authenticity. It's like everything I know so far, it's sharing, a, it's being vulnerable. There are stories in there that certain family members cringe about when they, they read it, you know, and oh, you were really honest, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, so for me, uh, but no, the, and then the fact that it is getting traction, I, you know, because uh, there's this fear, right? You throw a party and nobody's going to show up. And so the to the extent that people read it word of mouth, I mean, that I said, told you one of the biggest challenges that pisses me off the most is that the very entities that have the greatest opportunity to get this message out are won't won't let me fucking say anything about it. Mm hmm. And so the good news of that is that when it is growing at the rate that it is about 30% per quarter or more on average, um, that it's word of mouth. And so people aren't going to read it or tell people about it if, unless it's meaningful to them and they do. So yeah, that's a victory for me. No doubt about it. What do you hope 
folks get out of your book, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery? Um, well, hopefully they can get a toehold on spirituality and have the experiences that if you simply read the book, watch the videos and engage in some of the exercises that you'll get the same traction and understanding that I have you know, that, that, and that's, and that everybody, literally everybody that has gone through the process has experienced without exception. If you could explain this quantum theory in 10 words or less, what quantum is, what is it? What if you can summarize that? Well, the, the, one of the main principles of the, uh, the two main principles that really tie together the easiest ones to understand uh, is one of them is that there's uh, everything that you see, you know, it's a reductionistic approach, right? Everything that you see, you, me, trees, the earth, the sun, everything is basically made up of three types of subatomic particles. Uh, they're called up quarks, down quarks, and electrons. And the up quarks and down quarks make up the nucleus of any atom, right? So um, those those uh, subatomic particles, if you were to take the nucleus of a helium atom, for instance, and blow it up to the size of a golf ball, uh, the field of possible locations for the electron that's swirling around yeah. it would be three, three miles across. Wow. That's a lot of space. Wow. If you took, so all that space though, isn't empty. It's actually energy and information and the electrons and these, these subatomic particles are what appear when the fields that they're derived from the energy that they're called fields, quantum field theory, um, are excited to a very specific, uh, voltage 2.2 mega electron volts for whatever it's in the book. Um, and so when that, when that field is excited to a very specific value, it interacts with the Higgs field, which gives it mass. So it converts from energy to mass using okay. the Higgs field. So our consciousness is also a field. And when we, we actually have a material impact on reality um, with our consciousness. And so that would be the connection between our intentions, our desires manifest and plays out in, in it. Cre we create our reality. We really literally become co-authors of our reality. And the book makes that argument and how that works and um, provides a number of examples of real life situations. It's very real power being manifested as the result of our consciousness in the interplay of the universe. Yeah, well, the, the fields are continuous throughout the entire universe, right? So you're sitting there in Minnesota. I'm here. Right. My electrons, my quarks and stuff are literally derivative of the exact same field that you are. Right. So we're all connected in that right. way, you know, um, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? I mean, we're more than just a bunch of quarks and electrons, or at least one would hope to think that, right? Absolutely. So the, the ghost in the machine, if you will, is our individual consciousnesses, which are all likely the you know energy and information right so but yeah the fact that we are quite literally derivative of the exact same fields you and me sitting there wherever the hell you are and me here at the same time um you know that's the essence of the connection that we have so that's another one of the spiritual benefits of adopting understanding the science behind it and every experiment that's ever been done to either confirm or disconfirm quantum field theory has has validated it. It's not conjecture. It's not theory. It's 
reality, the nature of reality. So our understanding of that can be very beneficial. And can give us the ingredients we need to understand how skeptics. Yes. 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 I mean, you know, I've never met anyone that was too dumb to get sober, but I've met a lot of people that were too smart to get sober. No doubt about it. And so this book is for those people that are too smart to get sober. And believe me, all the people, the workshop, you know, and I love it because they push back, you know, like, well, what about this? What about that? And it gives me an opportunity to, uh, you know, it makes me think about it more. And every I, I have yet to come across a situation that hasn't been able to be overcome or uh, explained. I love that because I did really believe that I was too smart for spirituality for a long time. I really did believe that I was too smart for recovery, too smart for the 12 steps until well, again well, we, they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive you can be smart and have yes, spirituality you yes you, you can. know it's not like yes you it's can. not like if you're smart you can't have it but no doubt about yeah, it. it's easy. our ego would like to have us that was that. it that was it 100 percent. you could absolutely be very very smart and still be spiritual, spiritual. in fact the more you understand the closer the two seem to be getting together there's a show called what the bleep do we know into the rabbit hole which actually has a lot of the people that are in the TED talks and documentaries here that puts it all together very nicely. I watched it at the end of the workshop with everybody and the workshop helped make it so that they could watch the video and be like, Oh yeah, I know know exactly what they're talking about. Um, Whereas it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's hard to get that much information and do a two hour movie. Indeed. Two more for you. The next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. All right. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, I caused my wife a lot of pain when I was going through a lot of the addictive stuff. And there's some value, I think, sometimes in remembering that pain, holding it on, holding on to it, because it motivates me to know what I don't want to experience again. And we have this built-in immune system, emotional immune system that helps us forget things. They've done a, they've done studies where they monitored the happiness of people that won the lottery and people that became paraplegic. Right. And, and six months later, they're both equally happy. Yep. And so um, there's a part of me that doesn't want to forgive myself necessarily because part of that shame is what keeps me motivated to, not want to go back there. Um, on the other side of the coin, I've been able to give, you know, I can be selective about when I draw on that, right? So I, you know, I don't think about it much and I, I uh, forgive myself for those things. Here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you, Andrew? Hmm. Oh boy. Um, uh, she talks to angels. Ooh, I like it. Black Rose. Yeah. That's the one that I most identify with the darkness that comes with addiction. And so the, 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 the juxtaposition of my, yeah 
state of being against that is uh, beneficial. It's a great song. And one that we haven't had yet. We have a curated Spotify playlist that has each guest's song choice on it. So Uh-oh. she talks to angels by the black crows will be the newest edition. So check the show notes for Andrew's song recommendation. Check the show notes for Andrew's book recommendation, his best piece of recovery advice, as well as how to get in contact with Andrew and all about how to get and learn about his new book, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, Putting the Universe to Work for You. I absolutely love every part of it, brother. It is an incredibly important contribution to the recovery literature sphere or as the cool kids call it quit lit so thank you for this book thank you brother for coming on the way out podcast this has been an extraordinary discussion oh no i appreciate it and very insightful questions andrewgpierce.com that's where you go And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.